this reading today was really long. So uh, we know the story quite well. So I'm, I'm not taking the whole, whole section, but uh, it really does have to do with the Jesus revolution, which I want to talk about today. So if we could just have somebody come up and, and read uh, for us, that would be great. And then we'll all read together again. Thanks, Kipper. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God may be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the, do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that, that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of, the, in the son of man? Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those, so that the blind and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Altogether. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the good news of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much, Kim. Yeah, that's a pretty... I'll just put that there. So, yeah, so the family news, first of all, just before we jump in, is to do with, uh, we gave an announcement last Sunday, but we, we were downstairs, so we couldn't show you this. So uh, I'm stuck, I'm not sure why it's a, there we go. So, uh, so congratulations to TJ and AJ. That's another wedding I did about a couple years ago here. And TJ is, you'll remember, is Shannon's nephew, right? And Gordy and Shannon are uncle and auntie to him. And he grew up in our church as well. Don't know if you remember them, Jess, but he was kind of a little guy running around. Uh, and uh, they live in Surrey now, but they just, uh, Arlo arrived. Uh, it took about three or four days to decide that he was going to come. And um, so eight, eight pounds, 10 ounces, so congratulations. He's now part of the Gibosh clan, right? Isn't that cool? So congratulations, if you're watching, cool. And you know, there are perks to being a pastor. And this little guy stole the show last Sunday. 
because we were, you'll remember Sean and Rachel Fraser were giving their story and they were getting ready to go on a six week road trip down the West Coast. Uh, she's a pediatrician on parental leave and he's a teacher on parental leave. So they have this six week window to do a road trip and they have friends down the California or Oregon coast and, and, uh, and then Palm Springs, it's tough, but somebody has to do it. And so, uh, we blessed them last week and it was so cute because the people that came up to pray for them, to bless them, got totally distracted by Callum. They forget the prayer. I mean, they were just, he just bedazzled them. So I got to, they, they live in our neighborhood. So I walked, uh, had a chance to say goodbye to them on Wednesday and I got this privilege. What a guy, what a guy. I, you know, when you look at him, you think that's Sam, right? He's, he's growing so, he was born in November, all right? Oh man, okay. So let's, um, let's go into our teaching today. I wanna take a few minutes to reflect on the Jesus revolution in light of our text. Uh, two Sundays ago, and of course this movie is still in the theaters, I think at least till Thursday, uh, Kathleen and I took the opportunity, I wasn't gonna go, because usually when it's a Christian movie in the theaters, I've just had too many bad experiences, <laughs> all right? So I was, you know, you're, you're, you're worried about, you know, cliches and formulaic and cheese factors and everything else. And, but Kathleen and I heard, I heard some really good reviews from credible uh, sources. And the storyline intrigued me because it's our story. This is very connected to our story in the vineyard. And the, the reviews were so strong that we felt con compelled. And I'm glad we did. Um, I strongly recommend it if you can see it in the theater. It's, it'll be available later, but it's really fun in the theater. Um, it was well acted, well produced. Uh, there was laughter and flow, tears flowing a few times. And most of the story is true. It's based on a, a true story, as I said, the part of our story. And the setting of it was kind of at the height of the hippie movement in the 1960s. Uh, this is Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, and it was a remarkable time in American history. I was a little bit young for it. I kind of caught the tail end of it coming into the 70s as a teenager, and um, young people were rebelling against the establishment and finding that our Western values were not adequate to meet the deep hunger of every human heart for something transcendent beyond just getting ahead and materialism and the American dream or the North American dream. And so they turned to a life of sexual promiscuity, drugs, and rock and roll. The common phrase coined by Timothy Leary, the American psychologist and author who advocated psychedelic drugs for transcendent experience, their, their common phrase was turn on, uh, tune in, and drop out. And this was fueled by anger, a lot of anger over the Vietnam War. The civil rights movement was, was stoking it. The shocking death of JFK in 1963. And then there, there was this foreboding fear. It was like we lived in the shadow of the Cold War and everybody was expecting a nuclear war. The Bay of Pigs invasion in, in 1963 was, was part of that. And, um, or just a bit earlier, and, and the rise of the Beatles. I know that sounds trite, but yeah, the Beatles had an incredible 
music was an incredible part of that culture. At the same time, church attendance was at an all-time low. Sound familiar? Young people had left the church in droves. Sound familiar? For them, it was boring and irrelevant. And Time magazine in 1966 came out with this infamous cover article, Is God Dead? And the period of time that this movie depicts, by the way, as I said earlier, no spoilers. This is common domain here, what I'm telling. There's, there's, it's, I'm not going to wreck the show for you, so you still go. You see this struggling church in Southern California. I believe it was a four-square gospel church at the time, uh, pastored by Chuck Smith. It's poorly attended, and there's virtually no young people there, except the pastor's daughter, who's bored out of her mind. And the pastor, who's Chuck Smith, is bemoaning how dark the world has become. And he's holding up this magazine cover. And he pines, but those who endure to the end <laughs> shall be saved. So right around this time, there's this hippie in Haight-Ashbury. Started uh, some other part of California, but he moved to Haight-Ashbury. His name was Lonnie Frisbee. And he had this amazing encounter with God. And after a season of evangelizing and joining some Christian communes in the Haight-Ashbury area, he senses God calling him to Southern California. I believe he was married already by this time. And when they arrive, he meets the daughter of Chuck Smith and, and her boyfriend, and they invite Lonnie to come to their house because Chuck Smith was really angry at the hippies, and he wanted to meet one, and, you know. So they invite him over, and he just totally disarms them with his testimony. He's just so full of the Holy Spirit and life, and he's disarming and winsome. And, and uh, there's lots of opportunities to see Lonnie preach on YouTube. You can Google and just see him. And you can see why he was just so liked and so received. He's just got this beautiful childlikeness about him. So, so they had... Lonnie over for dinner, and then he moves in to stay because they had no place. So they move in, he and his wife, and then, then he invites some of his friends <laughs> to stay in the house with him, and, and they're camping in the backyard. So Chuck invites them to church, and they start coming to church, and that was interesting. It, it caused tension just right when they walked into the church, right? He's smelly, long-haired, bare-feeted, hippies who are wrecking the carpet with their bare feet. And the pastor has this crisis because one night he invites Lonnie to preach. And Lonnie gets up, gives his testimony, and boom, he says, come Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, bam. I mean, there was just stuff happening. People were falling over and shaking and being healed and delivered from drugs. And and so instead of a little trickle of hippies, it became a river flowing into this church with their long hair, their beads. And some of the established members of the church got really upset, and some left the church over this. But it packed out the church. They had to move into a tent, and they began to have weekly baptisms at a place called Pirate Cove, and they were baptizing 200 people a week, hippies, young people, 
25 usually and under. It was just a, a river. And here's an image of Chuck Smith. This is actual real photo and Lonnie preaching on the beach and getting ready to baptize another couple hundred people every week. Now, the movie doesn't highlight this too much, but I should say that this started happening everywhere. This wasn't limited to Southern California. Southern California was an epicenter. There, it definitely was a, a catalyst, a spark, but God just started doing that everywhere. And it spread so much, not only in North America, but to Canada, here in Vancouver, to Europe, uh, other parts of the Western world, particularly the hippie trail was impacted through Europe to Asia. So much so that five years later, after the Time magazine article, Time came out with this one, the Jesus Revolution. Does God have a sense of humor? And this whole movement was fueled by a new genre of music called Christian rock. I grew up believing, being taught that rock music was of the devil. Drums were of the devil. Electric guitars were of the devil. Long hair was of the devil. They quote scripture to me about that one. It is a shame. Doesn't nature teach you? It's a shame for a man to have long hair. I don't know why the accent came in there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but I lived with a Texas family. For, so, uh, but but that, that kind of came. So there you have Larry Norman. He got a revelation from Jesus. And you know what the revelation was? Why should the devil have all the good music? Right? So I don't think he wrote just like a Rolling Stone, but he could have. And what was the one you were playing earlier? God gave rock and roll to you, Wade? <laughs> Petra. <laughs> yeah, Petra. I forgot to show those guys. I love those guys. And Keith Green. And then Love Song. You know what's crazy? The first Vineyard home group, these guys were in it. I don't know if Larry Norman was, but Bob Dylan was, along with Keith Green, Love Song. They met in a home group in Northern California, and it was part of the Calvary Chapel. Ken Gullickson was the one who led the group. He was part of Calvary Chapel and became the first Vineyard home group because they were touched by what God had done through Lonnie. And there was a bit of a falling out between Lonnie and Chuck Smith, the pastor of... Uh, Calvary Chapel. So Lonnie left, but there were a lot of people that said, we miss that moving of the Holy Spirit. And so that was one of the reasons that home group started in Northern California. I'll talk more about uh, Lonnie in a minute. Because I think there's, there's something about the timing of this show coming out. There's just a sense across the church. I felt it in the ministerial this week uh, with other pastors that, that God is God is getting wanting us to get ready and prepare for another wave of God's spirit. And it often, it's not just 1960s and 70s. I've been a student of awakening and revival, and it often comes when everybody's written the church off. It's just like going down, like Wesley, the Wesleyan revival was the same. Church attendance was at an all-time low People had given up on the church, and boom, God says, fooled you. So it touched here in Vancouver. This, does anybody know what newspaper this is? 
It's a Vancouver Sun. This was in uh, 1973. And this was a, a Journalists went to St. Margaret's Church, affectionately known as St. Maggie. And, and there was a, a fellow, this, this man in the middle, who God gave a similar heart for those who were on the margins, who were not, didn't feel welcome at church. And he said, you can come to church and you don't have to cut your hair. You don't have to get your act together before you come. You can just come. And it's really cute. She says, much of the flock is blue-jeaned, long-haired, bearded. Because it's January, they're wearing shoes. <laughs> I love that. And Pastor Bob Birch, he's a sparrow of a man, is leading the church in jubilant, uninhibited worship of the Lord. And of course, how does this connect to our story? Well, one of the pot-smoking hippies that came in to that by the way, it was housed in the building that's now known as West Coast Christian Fellowship. It's morphed a lot since then. Bob Birch, of course, has passed away. But during the Jesus movement, that was a real epicenter here in Vancouver for the Jesus people. And there was a hippie by the name of Joe Kelder, long hair, sandals, pot smoking, came to Christ in that church. And at the age of 21, I believe, uh, he became known as Elder Kelder. And he led the House of Daniel, which was a Christian commune in South Vancouver. There are some other hippies that came to Christ. Charmaine, his wife, and Joy and Gary Best came to Christ. So these were the two founding couples of the Langley Vineyard uh, about a decade or 15 years later, right? So you can see how our story is connected. So they moved to the valley. And then Joan Shar felt this call of God to come back into East Vancouver and to plant Vancouver's first vineyard church with a vision for being a church without walls. And somewhere in the church's past 34-year journey, which we will be celebrating our anniversary in about three weeks, it's always Easter Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection and the birth of East Vancouver Eastside Vineyard. Somewhere in that 34 journey, year journey, we all have become part of the story. So Lonnie Frisbee, does anybody know where he is in this picture? Can anybody guess? What's that? Yeah. He's in a school auditorium, which was at that time being used by the very first uh, church vineyard church pastored by john wimber john wimber had had started the church and it was doing okay it wasn't bad but everybody vineyard outside the vineyard researchers will tell you that this particular night mother's day 1980 john wimber felt that god wanted lonnie to preach so he invited him to preach pretty good message and you can still hear that message by the way on youtube it's recorded. You, 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 it's, it's not a video, but you can see the still shot and listen. To, and it's a great message. You got to listen to it. You can listen to Lonnie preach that message. Well, then at the end of it, the sermon, he said, what did he say? Come Holy Spirit. And bam, it just went. Now, Lonnie had been out of Calvary Chapel for three years and Wimber invited him in. And uh, 
and they began to travel and preach together. And that was really the spark of the vineyard kind of signs and wonders aspect was power of Lonnie Frisbee coined that phrase, power evangelism, came from him. So in summary, when the church was at its lowest ebb with youth alienated from the church and the establishment, a wave of God's mercy reached out and embraced a lost generation and gathered them in. So there are parallels to, for today, and I've already talked about some, but spiritual tidal waves are like tsunamis. The water often, if, you know with tsunamis, they, the water often really goes out, and you feel like it's going in the opposite direction, and all of a sudden uh, a wave comes crashing in. And the core issue is looking, going back to our text today, through the lens of our text on the healing of the blind man, what can we draw that God might be saying to us? And I believe the core issue is an invitation to a whole new way of seeing. That's really what's at core. You know, here's what, should we pray more? Do we work harder? Do we get more programs going? I think the invitation we're hearing through this text is to put on a new set of glasses. You know, right at the beginning of the story, you know, and, the, and by the way, the, the, the narrative, the way of seeing that Jesus uh, is inviting us to is to move beyond this narrative. And this happened with the Jesus movement. By the way, the Jesus movement had its, it wasn't perfect. I think one of the, the, the theological problems of the Jesus movement is they were very focused on the rapture and getting out of here. I think they were so disillusioned with the establishment that the rapture kind of provided an escape. And so a lot of the Jesus movement is associated with this kind of escaping from the planet. And so when, when the Jesus people kind of entered back into the world again, it, it, there wasn't a good, sound, healthy theology of, of living in the, how many know we're in the world, but not of the world, for the world. See, often we say we're in, but not of, but we're in, but not of, for the world. In, uh, not of, for the world. But the Jesus people came back, I think, with a toxic theology. I think that's where a lot of Christian nationalism comes from. That kind of bad mix with evangelicalism in the church comes from that kind of lack of a good sound theology. But of course, there was a lot of good, and a lot of people came to Christ. And uh, I think the Jesus movement, God put on a pair of glasses for Chuck Smith and for Bob Birch and for others, and took away that narrative of who's in and who's out based on your appearance and how you look and being in the margins. And we see that in the disciples' question to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Can you imagine that? That was their worldview. This guy was in the margin. He was blind because he'd done something wrong or his parents. Now, how can a baby be born blind have done something wrong? Well, they believed you could sin in the womb. Or some of them believed you preexisted. So you did something bad, and it was a little kind of form of... Uh, 
reincarnation, a little bit. It was kind of, you pre-existed. And so, so there was this kind of theory floating around that if you were blind and begging, you deserved it. So Jesus dismisses the question as irrelevant, and he basically says, blind happens. Doesn't he? That's what he says. I, I could say it in a more crass way, but let's just keep it Christian. Blind happens. Blind happens. Let God work. God's at work. Stuff happens. Crap happens. Pain happens. Suffering happens. Stop analyzing whose fault it is. Let God be glorified. Let God work. So then he breaks Sabbath because you're not supposed to need dough on the Sabbath day. That's breaking Sabbath. But he spit in the mud and made, spit in the dirt, made some mud, and put it on the guy's eye. Busted, working on the Sabbath. It's close enough to kneading dough, right? Puts it on the guy. He must have had to get help to go to the pool of Salome, right? Sent, interesting that name. He must have had help to get there. Washes his eyes, has no idea who it was that told him to do that. All he wanted to do is get that yucky mud off his eyes. And when the mud goes, he sees. He comes back seeing. Oh, scripture misses so much there. Can you imagine somebody who's never seen in their whole life? I've heard that when someone does see for the first time, that all they see are color splotches. They have no way to interpret it. So the fact that he could even interpret what he was seeing was a miracle, right? And People say, well, is he the guy? Is he the same? He looks like that blind guy. He said, yeah, I'm the guy, right? So then they, they bring him to, you know, but simply for getting healed, he gets into this theological argument because they find out that Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And for that, the Pharisees called Jesus a sinner, quote unquote. And he responds with this classic saying, I just love this. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. We are living in a time when we don't know a lot. So go with what you know. And be at peace with what you don't know. It's okay. You don't need faith for what you know. Well, I guess you do. I shouldn't say you don't. But it's, it takes faith to live with the unknowns, with the questions. He said, I don't know. Maybe he's a sinner, but I know I can see. I was blind, now I see. Now it's important to remember the conflict was not over, over Sabbath about resting. Jesus was all about getting rest and being replenished. We know that he often got away with his disciples, alone with the Father. The problem with the Sabbath is, is that they heap their own interpretation on it, their own rules and bylaws, based because the Sabbath had mutated into a badge of visible identity. Remember Israel, when they were captured and their temple destroyed, they lost a lot of the, vis the visible marks for what made them the people of God and defining who's in and who's out. So they had to come up with Sabbath. If you keep Sabbath, then you're in. If you don't, then you're out. And they had this label for sinner if you, didn't, if you didn't, weren't a good Jew, and they would unfriend you. Have you ever been unfriended? 
They basically excommunicated you, not just from the church, but from all society. You know, if you get excommunicated here, no big deal. You just go down the street, right? <laughs> they didn't have that option, right? Basically, uh, all of society, your social networks, it was at high cost. And at the end of the day, this man also got the boot. He got kicked out of the religious establishment because he actually came to Jesus' defense when they were criticizing Jesus. He says, well, isn't that amazing? You think he's a sinner? Well, which one of you have healed blind eyes, right? Like, I mean, that's, and they just, they're fed up with his bad theology, so they kick him out. But what's so tender to me, and I got to wrap this up, Jesus is waiting for him. It says Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man or in the human one? Do you believe in the human one? That's what Jesus meant when he said the son of man. I wonder how many people have been booted out that Jesus has looked for and found. Booted out of churches that Jesus has looked for and found. He wasn't asking, do you believe the right theology? He wasn't asking if you believe a formula. He wasn't asking if you believe the Apostles' Creed. Those are all good. I'm not against those things. Do you believe in the Son of Man, the human one? In other words, it was an invitation for him to put on the right glasses. Henry Nouwen, as I've often quoted, says that your primary quest in life is to learn, discover, and believe that you are the beloved. You're God's beloved. To see yourself mirrored in the loving eyes of God and then to say, thank you, by loving God back and loving others. Do you believe? It's basically, this is what Jesus is saying. Do you believe that in spite of the fact that you've been excommunicated, regarded as a heretic, you're back in the margins again. Do you believe in spite of what all the experts are saying? Sorry, that got Pentecostal there. Do you believe that in spite of what all the experts are saying, that you are chosen, that you are precious, beloved, a delight to God, regardless of whether or not you've performed well, done enough, prayed enough, checked the right boxes, fit all the right criteria. You've been healed of physical blindness. Now be freed from spiritual blindness and be given a new pair of glasses so that you can see who you really are. Embraced, loved, belonged. And no excommunication can take that away from you. And overwhelmed, the man cried out, I believe. And he worshipped. He didn't grab a Hillsong song and start singing, what a beautiful name it is. He didn't do that. I believe when he worshipped, he all of a sudden said, oh, here's the basis for my identity and belonging. It's through this person. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Song was going through my head this morning. So what if in this liminal time of Lent, listening, lament, this time of disorientation, the primary agenda of God is to have us wear the right glasses, 
To see not on the basis of who's in and who's out, but to really see yourself for who you are. And as a result, others for who they really are. Jesus ends with this sobering statement. For judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. What I love about, I'm having the privilege of offering spiritual direction to a lot of young leaders. More and more young leaders are reaching out from other churches. And what I'm seeing is a fundamental humility that recognizes that when I say I see, I'm, in, I'm on dangerous ground. I live with the unknown, and I trust God with what I know, that I'm beloved, that I'm loved, that God is good. So the issue then and now is not about trying harder, but an invitation often costly to putting on a new set of glasses and a new way of seeing. It's a lot easier than trying harder and doing all those things, but actually it's harder. Putting on new glasses, it's hard. It's painful. It, you probably can't do it without pain. I think pain's part of that process. So where in my story is God inviting me to look beyond my dominant narrative of who's in and who's out to really see people, myself and others, the way that God sees? Do you believe in, this, in the human one? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, the movie, I'll be honest with you, doesn't tell the whole story. There's a lot missing out, a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain. And Lonnie went through his own journey of brokenness. He had a number of homosexual liaisons. He was in and out of that scene, the gay bar club. And I think the church didn't know how to handle it. So there was brokenness in Lonnie, but I think there was brokenness in the church as well. And I believe with all my heart that regardless of his brokenness, whatever that was all about, and there's all kinds of things you can read on the internet about it, but I believe that when he was confronted about his sin, that Jesus was waiting for him when he was fired, when he was dismissed. And so Lonnie, there's a different identity than being a great prophet, being a charismatic healer, so you're a beloved child, and that will never change. That's your true identity. And thankfully, Chuck Smith and John Wimber and all these guys were reconciled to him on his deathbed in 1993. But I think the story could have gone better. I think it could have been better. I think we could learn. I think it's, I think it's prophetic that he, uh, there's different stories about why he was, he was gay. He talks about being raped as a, as a child and all of this. So as I said, Wednesday night in our, our group, uh, in, in our debrief, is 
that whole story is very nuanced. There's no one size fits all. In, you can't approach it with a cookie cutter. All we know is that he was God's child and Jesus was waiting for him. So I'm grateful for Lonnie Frisbee. I'm grateful for his amazing courage, for the way that he stepped into a time. I think when you have that kind of power and influence at that time of your life, when you're so young, you're incredibly vulnerable. I know a little bit of a taste of that, and you know what happened to me, right? So the question, my friends, is do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in the son of the human one? Let's just take a moment with that question. And in silence, just invite the Holy Spirit to come. Just be with that. So, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord turn his countenance towards you and be gracious to you and give you shalom in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.